We'll be looking back for the last time at Romans chapter number 8 and uh, the last five or so verses of Romans chapter number 8. It's this section of Scripture, um, like many other sections that, and honestly like a lot of other sections that we've seen in Romans chapter number 8, that we've had a tendency to pull phrases from without ever reflecting on what those phrases actually mean. Um, I know we've looked at Romans 1, there's no condemnation. And that one, we sometimes can look at that and understand what it means. But as we've moved through chapter number 8, we've seen other places where scriptures have been taken outside of the context of Romans chapter number 8 and applied in ways that they were never meant to be applied. Um, specifically, my mind goes back to some of the things where the Spirit talks about us being participants in prayer. There are things there that are applied in different ways that we weren't meant to apply outside of the context of Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 28, obviously is one of the, probably the favorite ones to take out of context and use in another way. But tonight we'll be covering another portion of Scripture at the, Romans, at the end of Romans chapter number 8. And specifically, verse number 37, the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. And that's normally where we leave off, that we're just more than conquerors. But there's a context that goes with that passage of Scripture. And it all is tied back to verse number 35. And ultimately, as we'll see, verse number 34. Um, so we'll, we'll concentrate tonight. I'm going to read, go ahead and read verse number 34 because there's some things that I want to call back from 35 to 39 to chapter number or verse number 34. But we'll read verse 4 through 39 and uh, we'll get into uh, some of what the text has for us. Verse number 34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, that is risen again. Who is ever at the right hand of God? who is also making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The text tonight, there's three words or three places that we find a specific word or specific phrase. Verse number 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse number 37, it says that we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And in verse number 39, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? So we see these three different places where love is mentioned, and that's what we want to look at tonight. First of all, we want to look at the interceding love of Christ, the inseparable love of Christ, and then thirdly, the indestructible love of Christ. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this text that the chief defect of the Christian. So the biggest defect, if you want to look at it as almost as a factory defect of a Christian, is failing to realize Christ's love for us. That's the biggest defect that we seem to have. And it's because of our nature of wanting to do everything ourselves. We understand that Christianity alone is the done gospel, not the doing gospel. That's what sets our gospel apart from every other gospel around the world. Because every other gospel's good news isn't in reality good news. Because it's something that has to be done instead of something that has been done. And that's our defect. Our, our wanting to do things... And in in our wanting to do things, we fail to see the love of Christ. What we have a tendency to do, and I know because I have a tendency to do this myself, is we have a tendency to take that same thought process of we've got to do something in order to achieve salvation, which we understand is wrong now that we've been saved. But we have that same thought process and we think that somehow we've got to do something to achieve this acceptance of God. Or we have to do something to achieve the love of God. Or that if we don't do something in a specific way, God's not going to love us as much as somebody else who does those things in a specific way. But the text tonight calls us back to the fact and to the realization that we are loved by Christ. So first of all, I want to look at the interceding love. And that's why I read verse number 34. Because verse number 34 cannot be separated if you see what I did there, cannot be separated from verse number 35. Verse number 34 tells us that Christ is at the right hand of God who is also making intercession for us. But the way that the text reads, we can't get away from the thoughts being the same. It's not that Paul switches his thought processes from verse number 34 to verse number 35, but verse number 34 and verse number 35 are actually linked together. How do we know that Christ loves us? How can we know that we cannot be separated from the love of God? And Paul goes on to give us practical reasons and practical things that the love of God cannot be separated by. But all these things are tied back to verse number 34. And they're tied back to the fact that Christ is making intercession for us. It's the intercession of Christ that we need to understand because it's in the intercession of Christ that we find the depths of His love. You see, what what we have a tendency to do is we almost have a tendency to think that the love of Christ is a rental where we have to rent the love of Christ. And if we don't pay our rent on time, they're going to shut and they're going to put a different lock on the rental unit. And when we go back up to the love of Christ, if we ain't paid that bill, then we don't have the key to the rental unit anymore. So we can't get into the love of Christ. We can't achieve being and dwelling in the love of Christ because we see it as a rental because we think it's dependent on us. But just like every other aspect of Christianity and every other aspect of salvation, we are participants, but it does not depend on us. We can participate in the love of Christ, but the love of Christ is not depending on us. I want to look really quickly over in the book of Matthew. 
just to kind of give us a little bit of an extra understanding of where we're headed tonight. But the book of Matthew, verse number or chapter number eleven, has is one of the texts that has begun to become one of my favorite texts of scripture, among others. But normally, about every six months or so, I, I end up having a different favorite text because there's something that I'm seeing in a text that has sparked my interest and I've, I've begun to dwell on and meditate on. And when you see those things, that becomes your favorite for a little while. But in chapter number 11, specifically in verse number 29, actually let's start in verse number 28. Jesus is speaking to the heavy laden. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you were to go on our website tonight and look up the about us part of it, what it says there is that as a church, we believe that Christ meant what he said when he said, come unto me, all ye who are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We believe that Christ meant what he said there. We don't think that he was just saying things, as we've said before. Paul didn't just say things for the sake of saying it. And Christ surely didn't say the things for the sake of saying it. But he gives us a little indication about who he is in this text. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So his call is for us to learn of him. Jesus wants us to learn about him. Learn him. Why? For I am meek and lowly in heart. That's the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is a place for us to find rest. The heart of Christ is meek and lowly. That's If you want to look at Christ's personality... He doesn't have an angry disposition. His disposition by default is meek and lowly. There's a lovingness and a comfort in Christ. As a matter of fact, if we look throughout the scripture, you never once see a place where Christ has to be provoked to love. Where he has to be provoked to comfort. Where he has to be provoked to find rest. What do we find God being provoked to? Anger, wrath, judgment. If God's provoked to anything, it has to be those things. But by default, God is a God of love. And that's why John tells us that God is love. Because that's who he is. If we want to chase after the heart of God like David did, we need to chase after the gentleness of Christ. We need to have that gentleness and that love of Christ displayed in us. If we're going to be like Christ, how did Christ say that you would know his disciples? Their love for each other. He said, you'll know them because they're like me. Christ's heart, his innermost part was love. And we miss that. We can come to this text and say, who can separate us from the love of Christ? But if we don't understand the love of Christ, we miss the whole thing. We can see all these other practical aspects, but if we don't understand that we don't have to provoke Christ to love, we don't have to provoke Christ to accept us, then we've missed the point. And we see this in his intercession for us. 
What this causes us to do is it causes us to live from the heart of God instead of living to the heart of God. We don't live in such a way that we think, well, if I'm not doing this or I'm not reading this or I'm not praying like this or any of those things that we have yoked ourselves with, then we don't have the love of God. We're, we're, we work as Christians sometimes trying to achieve the love of God instead of understanding that we have the love of God. We are participants in the love of Christ. We dwell in the love of Christ. There's not a walking out of the love of Christ. We're dwelling in that love of Christ. And that's what His intercession means for us. Christ is literally interceding for us on our behalf out of a heart of love. Every mistake that I make, every fall that I fall into, every sin that I commit, He is interceding almost like a, like on, and I know this is a bad example, but you know when you're sitting at the computer and you can't get the thing to load, so you go up there and you hit refresh and it loads again, and you go up there and hit refresh and it loads again, and you hit refresh and it loads again. That's in essence what the intercession of Christ is doing for us. It's the same thing. We're seeing that same love but we know that Christ is in heaven hitting refresh so we can see that love anew. That is the interceding work of Christ. He is in heaven talking about what he has done. He's not in heaven talking about what we did. We might have an accuser come before and say, look, look what they did. Christ doesn't care what they did. He's saying, let me remind you about what I did. And that's where we find the depths of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not in us. And that's the reason we can come to the rest of this text and see the things in this text and understand these applications and these things that will happen. And we can rest in the love that God has for us because we can be assured that it's there. And that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones meant when he said that our greatest defect is not understanding Christ's love for us. Because if we don't understand Christ's love for us, it's going to roll the rest of our life askew. We're going to run after everything that we can trying to achieve the love of God when we don't understand that we have the love of God already because of what Christ has done. So we see, first of all, the interceding love of God. And that brings us into our text for tonight. First of all, Paul goes through this and he starts to give us some things that can't separate us from the love of God. And then he gives us some things that can't destroy the love of God. So in this first section that Paul gives us in verse number 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he's calling us back to this who again. Not the what's necessarily yet, but the who's. Who's going to separate us from the love of God? Show tribulation. So I want to look at these words that Paul uses because, again, he's not using these words for no reason. Paul says, Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, this word specifically, it means pressure. The pressure that's put on to people. The pressure that's put on to us. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that you go to work and you get made fun of or they hit you because you claim Christ. But tribulation is the pressure that we are put under for being in Christ in a world that's not. When Jesus said, yea, in this world, ye shall have tribulation, he wasn't necessarily saying that every generation of Christian was going to be persecuted unto death. He was saying every Christian will be under pressure. That's what he was saying. The disciples, they were under pressure that led to death. Into the first century, they were under pressure that led to death. But you get up into the third century and the pressure that led to death was taken off. But the Christians that were in those days were still under a pressure of the culture that was around them. The false religions that were popping up. The things that they thought that they had to do. They were still under this pressure. And that's what we're under every day of our life. Because of who we are in Christ, we are under pressure. But the Bible tells us that this pressure is making us like Christ. If if you put a can of green beans into a pressure cooker and put it under pressure, it seals it. It makes it what it's supposed to be. And ultimately, that's what God uses tribulation in our life for. He uses that pressure to make us what we're supposed to be. I used to think I was a patient person until I was actually put in a position where I had to be patient. It's easy to be patient when you're not in a position to have to be patient. And from my standpoint, it's easy to be patient when you don't have four kids asking for something at the same time. It's easy to be patient when you don't have that. But whenever you're put under that pressure, you start to find out how impatient you are and you're called back to the gospel. And understand, well, if Christ is patient with you, then you should be patient with your children. That pressure is performing in a way that it's supposed to. But that pressure cannot separate me from the love of Christ. That's what Paul's telling us. He said that pressure that you're under, it's making you like Christ, but it's not going to separate you from the love of Christ. Secondly, Paul, not only tribulation, but he mentions mentions distress. The word distress here is interesting. It means mental grief or distraction. Mental grief or distraction. That grief can come in a multitude of ways. Being a fallen human being, there are things that I deal with in my own mind that puts my mind into grief. Whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, whatever it may be, there's things that I deal with in my own mind. But those things can't separate me from the love of God. Because I don't feel like a Christian today, because I don't feel like God loves me today, does not mean that I can be separated from the love of God. That mental grief from the things that I may have done or not have done cannot separate me from the love of God. And even further, that word goes on and carries with it the the idea of being distracted. Not only can the distress, but the distraction can't separate us from the love of God. And again, we mentioned last week or maybe the week before about praying and getting distracted when you're praying and thinking, well, my goodness, I can't even pray to the God of the universe without being distracted by something. How frail am I? But whether it be distress or distraction, neither one of those things can separate us from the love of Christ because Christ is never distracted from what he's done. That's the reason why we're to focus on the gospel. 
Because if we're focused on the gospel, we're less prone to become distracted. And even when we are distracted, we can still see something that's stable. So not only does he use the word distress, but the next word that we see in verse number 35 is persecution. This persecution, it does mean more than just pressure. Persecution means to be tried by fire. It means to be, to be hurt, to be put under something that is hurting you from another source. Not just from yourself, but from another source. And what Paul is saying that tribulation, that pressure is not going to separate us. The distress in our own mind and distraction of our mind is not going to separate us. But even the things that come against us cannot separate us. The things that come and we may be treated unfairly or we may be literally physically persecuted. While they may separate things from us. The book of Hebrews says that the people there took with joy the spooling of their goods. They basically, the, the author of Hebrews said, you were happy that you got to participate when they took your stuff away. You were happy about that because you weren't looking at that stuff. You were looking at something else. But what Paul is saying is that even if they separate you from your stuff, they can't separate you from the love of God. There are people that were persecuted. Their hands were cut off. What Paul's saying to those is they may separate you from your hand, but they can't separate you from the love of God. There were people even that were had their heads removed. But guess what? They can separate you from your head, but they can't separate you from the love of God. Paul goes further. Not only persecution, but famine. And he uses these words famine and nakedness together. He says famine and nakedness can't separate you. And in, in a sense, what Paul is saying is that those things that come from persecution, so the persecution can't separate you, but even the things that come from the persecution can't separate you. Those lasting effects of persecution can't, say, can't separate you from the love of Christ. My mind, though, it went even to what John said in Revelation. John told the church at Laodicea that they were poor and lame and hungry and blind and naked. And I know that wasn't the exact phrase or the exact order that he uses. But even the church of Laodicea couldn't be separated from the love of God. Because it wasn't about what they were doing. It was about the love of God, about what he had done. Paul goes on. He says, peril. Verse number 35. Or sword. Peril and sword are kind of the culmination of the persecution. He's saying there may be persecution where you come under things and you're persecuted. Things are taken away from you. Peril means to bring to the point of death. And obviously sword carries with it the idea of actual death. What Paul wants these Christians at Rome to understand is that in the near future, when even Paul himself would be brought under the point of death, and ultimately killed with the sword, nothing was going to separate him from the love of God. Because it wasn't his to begin with. Nothing could separate him. Even though he was at the point of death and was eventually killed, those things couldn't separate him from the love of, love of God. From the love that Christ had, though they separated him from his body, 
they could not separate him from the love of Christ. But he kind of switches gears a little bit in verse number 37. All right, it's technically in verse number 36. Verse number 36, he brings a reference from the book of Psalms into view. He mentions from Psalm 44, verse number 22, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. What he's saying is that this, this is the way the world sees you. But the beauty in this is this is the same way that they saw him. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was taken as, a, as dumb to the slaughter. He was led to the slaughter. He was led to be killed. And that's where we are. That's where we, that's where we live. Whether we are under physical persecution or whether we're not, we live a life of death. We're called. What is the call for the Christian? Is to die daily. When people look at us, that's what they're seeing. If nothing else, they look and see at a bunch of stupid people who follow religion as a crutch, whatever it may be. I've, I've made I've made mention before. There's there's a man that I work with that told me I was too smart for Christianity because it made no sense to him. There was no logic behind it. He said he said you you're too logical to be a Christian. And obviously that led into a lot of discussion between me and him. But that was honestly, that was the thing that, that allowed me and him to have discussions about the gospel and about God and about what it meant and about how it applied to him. There was, to my knowledge, the man never came to Christ because he refused to see God. But the fact of the matter is, though we live and are killed all the day long, and are counted as sheep to slaughter, it doesn't matter because of verse number 37. Paul says, nay or no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What Paul is basically summarizing and saying, you are going to go through all these different things. You're going to have all these different things come at you. And it's going to look like you are being killed all the time. You're just giving yourself up to be killed every day. And even times you are literally led like a lamb to the slaughter. But he says, is any of these things defeating you? Are any of these things going to defeat you? Pointing us back to the love of Christ, he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. And he calls us back. Through him that loved us. It's because of him. The word conqueror here, it, it literally... I, some of the way that Paul uses some of these, some of these words have astounded me. And I, re, I remember even back to where he says that there was... I, I can't remember the exact... I may, actually, let me just look back and find it really quickly. Where Paul talks about there being grace... I can't remember exactly where it's at. I think it's in chapter number seven, but he talks about there being an overwhelming grace. We, we looked at a few weeks ago, actually it's in chapter number five. My mind 
just reminded me <laughs> where it was. He said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, verse number 20. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. We talked about that meaning superabounding. It means much more abound. He used the same word structure here in verse number 37. He says, more than conquerors. In essence, what Paul's saying, not only did the grace much more abound, but the conquering much more abounded. And we're not conquerors by ourselves. We're conquerors in Christ that loved us. The word literally means to be an over-overcomer. Not just that we are overcoming the world. And what did Christ say to His disciples? He said, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul is telling us in Christ, we are over-overcomers. From the world's point of view, Christ did not overcome. Christ was defeated from the world's point of view. But from His point of view, from the spiritual point of view, He overcame not only their dealing with Him, but He overcame death and hell. He overcame it all. And because of what He did, and because He loves us, we are made more than conquerors. We're not just winners, we're more than winners. We didn't just get victory, we're more than victorious because of His love for us. And that's what Paul is driving us back to. It's the love of Christ that makes it this way. Paul is almost clinging to the love of Christ, saying you can have all the other victories. You can have every other thing in the world. Just give me the love of Christ. And he understood that's what he had, but that's what he wanted. He wanted the love of Christ, and he knew that nothing could separate him from what he had obtained. And it wasn't anything that he had done to obtain it because of what he said in verse number 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32. Because God had put his love on him. God loved him when he was unlovable. God saves us to the othermost, which is another one of those words. That means even farther than you can even imagine. Your salvation didn't just bring you from farther than you can imagine, but it's taking you to farther than you can imagine. But he says we are more than conquerors. It's interesting to note that most of the time when wars happen... People go to war for hatred. <laughs> if you think of, if you were to look up some of the wars that happened between the Romanian and the Turks, it's because they hated each other. Other wars that may be a hatred of philosophy or a hatred of thought processes. I mean, the Cold War was a hatred between capitalism and communism. So you've got all these philosophies, but it's a hatred that brews at the core of this war. And those that go to war, some may go to war for patriotic reasons. Some may go to war because of fear. But all of the conquering that happens in every one of these wars is never based around anything like what the conquering that we have is based around. Our more than conquering is based around the love of Christ. Not around the hatred for sin. Not even around the hatred for ourselves or the hatred for the things around us. And while God does hate sin, the conquering came through love. And that's what Paul is bringing us back to. That we are more than conquerors through the love of Christ. Through Him that loved us. It's not even in ourself that we're conquering. It's through the love of Christ. There was a statement made by Charles Spurgeon that the church... 
is the anvil that has broken many hammers. What he was saying is though all kinds of people, all kinds of empires, all kinds of dictators, all kinds of countries, all kinds of philosophies have come against the church of God. There's been no hammer that's been able to take the church of God down. Every bang of the hammer has solidified what was there. It's just made it harder. It's just made it firmer. It's just made it more able to stand the next thing that comes along. That's what the love of God has done for His people. He is building His church. And that's why the gates of hell will not prevail. Because He's the one that's building it. But this conquering is not just showing us why it has taken place, why we have the victory. But he even goes further and says, he tells us why we have the love of Christ because of the intercession and tells us what can't separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes and tells us why we have this victory through him that loved us. And he says, here's the things that can't take away your victory, that can't separate you from the love of Christ. And he breaks down through a couple of things again. He says, for I am persuaded and Paul just didn't mean, I think. He, Paul was absolutely convinced. That's what he's saying. He said, I'm absolutely convinced. You cannot, for lack of a better term, Paul said, I know without a shadow of a doubt that neither death, interesting that Paul starts out with death, he goes to the extreme and says, this separation cannot conquer me. I almost wonder if Paul didn't have the words that David used in mind. As David said, if I rise to heaven, you're there. If I descend into hell, you're there. David understood that no matter where he went, he couldn't be separated from that love of God. There was no distance that could destroy the love of God. Whether physical distance, emotional different distance, mental distance, no matter how distant we become to God ourselves in our everyday life, we cannot destroy. That distance cannot destroy the love of Christ. Even with Adam, Adam sinned, plunged himself and humanity into spiritual death. But that death didn't destroy the love of God. What should have destroyed the love of God for His creation did not destroy the love of God. It just calls the pursuit of God to Adam. Adam, where are you? Where are you at? What have you done? Well, guess what? I'm going to send a seed to take care of this. Even in that death, it didn't destroy the love of God. Paul says death. Nor life. <laughs> this points us back to a couple of different places, but honestly, sometimes, and I've heard the statement made that sometimes death is harder than, or life is harder than death. That death will be easier than what I'm going through. And that's partially what Paul means is that no matter what you go through in life, it can't destroy the love of Christ. But he's even pointing us back to our old nature. Through that life that we live, if we remember back in chapter number 7 where he talks about us having to carry around that dead man, being at war with that nature, that death that's on us, even our life as a new person, as a new man, as a born-again believer, 
That struggle with death can't separate us from the love of God. It can't destroy the love that God has for us. No matter what sin it is that we're dealing with, no matter what part of that old habit that we can't get rid of, that sin that seems to be holding us up and keeping us, like the author of Hebrews says, from being able to run effectively, all those things that entangle us, none of those things can destroy the love of Christ. None of those things that we do can destroy what He has done. Not only death, life, he mentions angels, messengers of Satan. And Paul knew this specifically because he said that he had a messenger of Satan come to buffet him. He said, there was a messenger of Satan came after me directly. And I even asked God to rid me of it. God said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. Even though the messengers of Satan, Paul knew personally that the messengers of Satan could not destroy the love of God. Principalities. This means the earthly rulers. Again, Paul was very personally aware that he, even the rulers of this earth could not separate him from the love of God. They tried. How many times is he, I believe it's in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Corinthians 5, where he says that he was shipwrecked three times and he was put in prison, the stone left for dead. He mentions all these things that people had done to him, but none of those things were enough to destroy the love of God. They were, none of those things were enough to take away, to get rid of, to crumble the love of God. Paul starts to crescendo these things. He says, not angels, not principalities. Not powers. But he says, nor things present, nor things to come. He said, there's nothing that's happening right now to me. There's nothing that will ever happen to me that will be able to destroy the love of God. Paul was absolutely convinced that nothing going on today, tomorrow, or for the rest of eternity would be able to destroy the love of God. There was nothing. It was an indestructible love that God had poured out upon him from the beginning of the world. Nothing could destroy it because every event that had happened throughout history had tried. But Paul knew and was absolutely convinced that it didn't matter what happened to him or what happened in him or what he did or what he didn't do. Today, tomorrow, whenever it might be, in the past, in the future, Paul didn't care. Because he said none of these things can even begin to chip away at the love of Christ. And he gets to verse number 39. So this almost becomes a defensive to an aggressive Paul says, not only things in the present and all things to come, but he says, not height, nor depth, nor any other creature. So Paul said, I can go as far into the universe as I want to go. I can go as far away as you can think, far away as any telescope can imagine. I can't get away from it. He says, he talks about depths. He said, no matter, I could go all six feet, I believe it is, into the bottom of the ocean where there's not even any light. And even though light can't penetrate those depths, the love of God is just fine at penetrating those depths. The pressure of the waters cannot destroy the love of God, even though it can destroy whatever else you put in it. 
the atmosphere. There might not be any air there on the moon, wherever it may be. There may not be any air, but the love of God's there. It can't be destroyed. He says, height, death, or any other creature. Paul literally says, when he says there are any other creature, that word, it means any other created thing. We know a creature is a created thing. We get that. But what Paul was emphasizing is that there's not even anything that can ever be created that can destroy the love of God for him and for us. And for all those that God has poured out His love upon. We may look at things and think, well, you know, Satan's hard at work at trying to get God to quit loving us. Trying to accuse us of sin, whatever it may be. Paul was absolutely convinced that even if God created something else, there would be nothing created that could ever destroy or take away the love of God from him. And he ends by emphasizing that. He says, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul takes these things and he puts them together. He doesn't want us to be misunderstood. He uses the love of Christ, Christ who loved us. But then in the end, he says, from the love of God. He doesn't want us to separate the love of Christ and the love of God because they're the same. He doesn't have, he's, not, he's not insinuating that the Father is there having to be warmed up to loving us by Christ. Christ isn't interceding before the Father to try and get the Father's love to be re- reignited for us. When we sin, that's the way that we have a thought process half the time is that, you know, well, what Jesus did, that may bring, bring love to us, but it has to be stoked up. Got to kindle that fire again. I got to do good to kindle that fire again. And it's not that. It's not even the fact that Christ is interceding trying to rekindle a fire of love for us. But that the love of God is enjoying the interceding of Christ. God loves us and God loves that Christ loves us. And God loves hearing about Christ's love for us. And anybody want to take a wild guess at why? Because it's all bringing glory back to Him. That's what the gospel does. And I know we've made mention of that. Even in our sin, it brings glory back to God. Every time that I come back to the cross and say, God, I have sinned again. Forgive me. It points my eyes back to the cross. My failures give God glory because I'm coming back to Him for what He did. Every place that I miss... He's hit. Every every time that I draw back, and that's what the sin means. It means to miss the mark. We understand that. But every time I draw back the bow and I miss the mark, you know what I see? I see the mark hit by Jesus Christ. The love of God has hit the mark every single time. And I remember every time that I miss that he didn't miss. That's the gospel. That's why we see what we see because all of this points us back to the glory of God that we've talked about this morning. The fact of the matter is, and when it all comes down to it, God's love isn't like our love. And that's, that's where we make the mistake. We make the mistake thinking that God's love is like our love. Our love 
for other people will last until that person betrays us. It'll last until that person forsakes us. But God loved us while we were betraying Him. While we were forsaking Him. If God loved us during being betrayed and during being forsaken and loved us while we were yet sinners and while we were enemies of God, who's going to separate us from that? How can you ever do anything to a person who loved you before you came to Him? Who loved you before you did anything? There's nothing that can separate us from that. Our love has a limit. And to quote Randy Travis, his love is without end. I know that was probably not the good place to quote somebody, but to kind of close everything up, the, the way that the, one of the things that I read that helped me understand the depths of the love of God, and I'll, and I'll be done, but there was an illustration given about a doctor. He didn't need any help. He was a rich man, and there was a disease in a foreign country. So he goes to this foreign country. By himself, he takes all the stuff necessary to heal these people. But when he gets there, they don't want his help. They want to deal with it their own way. They want to do it themselves. They want to deal with their own witch doctors. They want to deal with their own traditional ways, whatever it may be. They want to get rid of this sickness themselves. And they reject this doctor who's come to, in essence, to save them. what happens over time a few people decide to come to him and they finally come to him he gives them the antibiotic that they need and it heals them you think that doctor was mad about that was he mad that those people came to him after they rejected him was he mad was he did he have any kind of indignation in him thinking well y'all should have done this before the reason that he went was to save people. There was, no, there was nothing those people could do in coming to him to make him not want them to come to him. And that's what we have in Christ. At the core of it, nothing can separate us from the love of God because that's why he came. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's why he did it. We can't be separated by anything that we do because we are coming to Him for exactly why He came. And that same joy that He has when we come to Him, trusting in His Son is the same joy that He has every time that we fail and come back to Him again. Every time that we are persecuted, every time that we are pressured, every time that the principalities of this world may come against us, no matter what it may be, every time that we are caused to come running back to God, He loves it because He loves us. And that's why we're here. We're here to take His love that He loves us with, that can't be separated, that can't be destroyed, that's constantly being talked about, and we're to do those same things. To love people with a love that can't be destroyed. To love them with a love that can't be separated. To love them with a love that cannot be taken away. And to constantly talk about that love that he has for them. Paul takes this crescendo, so to speak, of the gospel. And he drives it home to us. 
We can't get away from it. And why would we not tell people about it? That's why we did what we did yesterday. It wasn't because it was fun to sit out in the heat with four kids and 2,000 plus people coming through to get something from us. It wasn't just because that was enjoyable. I don't even like people. Truth be known, I mean, I think everybody knows what I mean by that. I don't like being around people. I'm not a people person. I don't enjoy that. I enjoy sitting at home by myself. But there's a love that's been put in me because there's somebody who loved me enough to come after me. And that love can't be separated. And that love is producing in me and echoing me a love for him and a love for other people. And that's what he said was going to happen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a chance to be in your house. Thank you again for an opportunity to look back into your word, to look back into a book that 